0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy Get ready <laughs> I'm gonna for try some to awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from the Pacific Northwest, John Mark Comer. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I like anyone who can keep the middle name. I really appreciate yeah. that. It what? sounds, the only problem I say, it sounds a little
1: pretentious, but I just have to remind people, I did not name myself. It's not like I like, woke up one day and thought, let's add in the middle name for sophistication. It did just you, it's just what it is.
0: Mom and dad call you John Mark? Or- yeah, yeah. Oh, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. But you do mm-hmm. seem more impressive because you have a middle name.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I was just John, no offense to the Johns of the world and listening to this wonderful podcast, but I just, I don't know, why devolve backward? You know what I mean? Like no, just- once, you, once you're an adult and you have the option, I
0: don't know. I feel like you have very like very succinct names, like John, Mark, Comer. Like that's just they they all go together. M- I Nor- thought about
1: Jack. Like I didn't know this, but you know Jack is a nickname for John. And so I have a grandpa and an uncle who are, their legal name is John, but I never knew that until adulthood. They're they're Jack. I thought that's kind of cool, Jack Comer. Yeah. If I ever like have some scandal online, which will, <laughs> won't happen, <laughs> and I have to like recreate a new identity and move to a new city, I'll just cut Jack Comer. That'll be my alternative ah. identity. I, I, not that that I'm not kind of, planning for that.
0: But you, you never know. You never don't know. You gotta be prepared. I, I feel bad saying this, but I really like Jack Comer uh, a little bit more. I do. Uh I like I like you <laughs> a little bit the, more. <laughs> but I just like who you could be um as jack even more uh, so it'll,
1: it'll be an alter ego my i have this little <laughs> brother who's 12 years younger than me who is we look almost identical but he's a totally different personality and i'm like overly serious right mm-hmm. so i'm the oldest of four children in our family blah 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 so whenever i do anything that's like carefree or playful or mm-hmm. out of like out of my persona or whatever, he just calls me Sean Mark. That's like his little <laughs> nickname for me. So it's just a running oh, that's a Sean Mark moment right there. And it's just yeah. on the family group text. It's just hmm. embarrassing. So maybe Jack can take
0: its place. Jack could take that. When when my brother uh, thinks I'm doing something stupid, he calls me things worse than that. So uh, I feel like you get to better draw on the uh, the brother thing as well uh the the reason that we actually i think first connected the first time i was like hey i need to get to know this person was i was in nashville tennessee with my lovely wife Lindsay, and we were having breakfast with our mutual friend annie f downs oh yeah i think we were talking sabbath or something like that and she said you know who you need to talk to and i was like no i don't tell me and she said you and um it's really sweet that she she did that. She's introduced me to you. Uh she also recently um slandered my name on her podcast. She was talking Uh-oh. about any Ennegra- Are you an Enneagram person? Come on,
1: Annie. I I ooh, I have a really <laughs> unhealthy relationship with Enneagram. I used to be, let me say it that way. You
0: broke up with the Enne- Okay.
1: No, I, that's just. I don't know how much time. I don't know what you, what I, you want to talk about. I I have honest- a feel, but I don't know that it's helpful for anybody. What well, but- I'll just say I'm I'm in
0: I I can't not hear this the point of my story is that she said I was a very unhealthy seven um or Uh she said that uh I said I
1: don't know but she is a seven so she can't be like I'm healthy you're unhealthy
0: yeah that's not fair my wife has said once though that Annie is like the perfect seven and I was like you you didn't marry a seven so I feel like at least I should be up there let's go back to you breaking up with (laughs) the Enneagram yeah no I I mean yeah but uh let's go back to you breaking up with the Enneagram I'm I'm in for the story Jack
1: Oh, well, okay. So <laughs> so here's my little spiel. I, I, just, I don't know that it's helpful. I love the Enneagram. I hate how it's being used in a lot of ways right now, in particular in relationships communities where it's being more and more used as a personality theory for interpersonal relationships and less and less as a kind of map for um, spiritual formation for each individual personality type. Mm-hmm. So I came into the Enneagram maybe seven years ago through my therapist. I'd never heard of it. It was before it blew up. Um, it was obviously around, but and he introduced me to it, and it was life-changing for me. I won't tell you what my number is, but I, like there was one that was instant, like mm-hmm. I would say love connection, but it was more like I was wrecked for you know, weeks at a time in that first moment, and um, it was so helpful. And then a couple of years ago, as you know, basically the thing got monetized. And now it's all over, and I think it's really helpful for a lot of people, but it's being used very differently, and um, we've done a lot of work with it in our church, which I is very helpful, but I hate the way it's weaponized. And, you know, in traditional—so here's my little spiel—traditional, as I understand it, Jesuit Enneagram tradition, mm-hmm. as it came into the American church in the 70s, blah, blah, blah. So how it works was your spiritual director— would use Enneagram as a theory to give you spiritual direction. You would not even know what the Enneagram was. He would not use the language. He would not say that's a seven thing or, you know, ones go to four or threes go to whatever. He would not say any of that stuff. He would just help you pray and help you grow in Jesus. Mm. And um, then if and when he thought you had the, emotional maturity and level of self-awareness that you could handle that kind of a paradigm put over yourself and not let it become an identity or an excuse or something that you know just destroys you emotionally then he would offer or she would offer this to you but then you're not allowed to tell somebody so i will never forget i once made the mistake of asking my spiritual director who's this like late 60s early 70s jesuit priest who's been teaching enneagram for 30 years I said, hey, what's your Enneagram number? And I'm thinking, I think he's five, I'm Uh like typing the whole thing. And you would have thought I just asked him some horribly inappropriate (laughs) question about his anatomy or his personal salary or who he voted for. I mean, he literally backed up against the wall, looked down at his toes and said, I'm sorry, we don't ask that question or answer it. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's so easy to weaponize. And so now that we've done a lot of work with it in our church in Portland, which I love, and I, I love how it's helpful, but I hate if I hear one more person say, you know, that's such a seven thing, or <laughs> my community's got too many fives, or I literally just had somebody going through a divorce who's like, I can't be married to a five, or whatever. And I'm just like, this is baloney, you mm-hmm. know, is the Christian version of how you say that word. So I don't like it how it types people. I don't like it how easily weaponized it is. I don't like how people use it to blame ship. But I actually love it for my own kind of journey with Jesus. I just don't take it as an identity. I take it as one of many mirrors to kind of see this is where Jesus needs to keep getting into my heart, you know?
0: Yeah. So,
1: spiel, soapbox, over. I'm so, done. So, I'm so um, saying, you want to know what my Enneagram number is? <laughs> I will tell you.
0: No, uh, <laughs> but uh, when... It, I was going to invite you to Austin in March because Suzanne Stabile is coming back to our church and she's doing oh, another yeah. conference. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she is coming. But uh, no, no. I, I I, think the corrective against some of the ways that it's been uh, turned into a, like a parlor trick or party party trick or the yeah. way that it reduces people to just a caricature of what the fullness yeah, of your yeah. personality is. I, I think that's fair. And I think... Any and every person seems to be presenting themselves now as an enneagram expert, and that yeah. anytime time that no,
1: happens, and In my experience to like to get your head into it takes quite a bit of time. It's mm-hmm. not like a quick, you yeah. know. When and I think the danger, I mean, the promise of a personality theory, be it that or Myers Briggs or whatever, is that it reveals aspects of who you are, mm-hmm. who you're not, and what your journey is into Christ-like love. That the danger of it is the same thing that it also conceals. And so once you put a label over, like, I'm a seven, I'm a one, I'm a four, you just learned a lot about you, but you also probably just hid a lot of things about yourself, too, that don't fit the paradigm. And that's where I think it can be an aid to self-growth and to self-awareness, but when it, like, is, like, I think it's helpful to work with for a couple of years and then kind of move on. Like, when it becomes your dominant identity or type or whatever, I think, "Ah, I worry a little bit about, does it conceal as much as it reveals at times?
0: Yeah. Uh, my friend Suzanne Stabil, literally, when she was taught by Roar the Enneagram, Roar said, "Don't talk about this for years." I think it was like five years yeah. before ever even. Yeah, him. I remember now, she said that. Now, likewise. One of the, my limitations is that I'm learning the Enneagram on the podcast, and I even was with Roar the very like the week I first had heard of it. I was like, "Hey, talk to me about this," and yeah. so I, I've been processing it through the podcast, but I've never publicly taught it from uh, in a church setting, um, even though I've. Been learning about it talked to a lot of people about it but i i think uh i, I think just a, a little touch of uh of reticence about something might be helpful especially when you don't fully understand it yet so yeah.
1: um yeah okay um and again i'm not I'm anti, i meant to actually love it and it's been incredibly helpful in my life in my wife's life and our marriage I just, I think it's, I'm, this is probably not a rational (laughs) response. I think it's just being abused as much as it's being used right now, Mm -hmm. you know? And if I hear one more person say, that's just such a type thing, (laughs) I can't stand this about type threes. I'm just like, can we just not say that please?
0: But did you say the number three because that's your number? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I didn't say that no. out loud. I didn't say that. Let me, by act of denial, I will say no. I am not. I do not identify that's, as That's person. not even as I read your book. I do read books and go, I wonder if this person is a such number. And that's not the number I would guess. But nevertheless, we're going to move on to your book, okay? Um, Great. I feel like what we did, though, is we disenfranchised. Now that I
1: just made half of the American church angry. They all
0: hate you. They're not going to buy your book, <laughs> which comes out at the end of this month. But Dang I, I,
1: you, Luke Knowsworthy.
0: Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, okay, so the story is, uh, I like that your book starts off with the story of being a burnt out pastor, and you've, you're have you young, you've started this church that's had um, a great deal of numerical success, and success in the American definition of success, and seven years in a row, you've added a thousand people to your church. Is that right? Am I getting it? Yeah, basically.
1: Basically, I mean, you know, pastors are goofy in how they count attendance, Yeah, and you think it would be a simple thing, so it depends how you count.
0: There, there but, are no math classes in seminary.
1: Yeah, well, because they, they get goofy, so you'd be like, oh, this is a 20,000-person church, and then you're just like, but there's 7,000 people there on a Sunday. You're like, wait a minute. So I always ask, how many adults are in seats or whatever? So yes, at our height, we had about 6,000 adults and 1,000 kids, and I don't say that to brag. I say that more out of embarrassment.
0: <laughs> Why do you say that as out of embarrassment? Well, I I just don't, I think that
1: a a lot of people at a church can be a sign of health and life and the vitality of the Spirit of God at work, and it can be a sign of a lot of other things as well. And I don't think that bigger is better, and I think it's actually the larger a church gets, it can be really hard to keep it healthy by some of the metrics that matter most. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, that's not a pot shot at churches over X size, because you could probably make that case for anything more than 20 people yeah. so at all. And it's not like I have a house church now. So I just I think um, I think we just have I think the mega church inside the ecosystem of the church in a city serves a vital purpose, particular for resourcing, justice initiatives, vision, teaching, church planning. I think they play a really beautiful role. But I think when that gets held up as the preeminent kind of model of church, you have a massive problem on your hands. And, you know, megachurch is both a size of church, but it's also a way of doing church. And there's a lot of 200-person megachurches. And that's what I just, I'm, I'm less and less interested in, you
0: know? I, I think black and white, we should move away from the black and white categorization of a church's success based on the numbers.
1: Yes, and, yes.
0: And I, I appreciate you saying that, there are a lot of healthy big churches and a lot of unhealthy big churches. And just because it's big and just because it's small doesn't really answer the question of, is it healthy or not? It's like saying- um, Exactly. It's it's a question of category. It's the wrong category you're asking. You're asking the numerical category, not is it health. Those are two different subject matters. Totally different.
1: And people want to make it something as easy as that because it's measurable and it's easy to throw stones. Like I remember when- the Bill Hybels thing happened a few months ago. What a tragedy for our, the church in our nation. What a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But I remember listening to this one podcast of a kind of cynical millennial pastor who was saying, this is the problem with the mega church. And this is the problem with the authoritarian power structure, Da da da. I remember chuckling to myself. One, like Willow Creek was famous for being incredibly well-led and having all sorts of good systems and structures in place. They literally wrote the book on some of that. Mm-hmm. And then I was watching a church in my city. That was the antithesis. It was, you know, 200 people, Hyper-intellectual, right in the city, run by a professor, and it was the almost exact same story of, you know what I mean, allegation and abuse, and it was it was literally almost the same thing. Nobody knew about it because it was nope. 200 people, not 20,000 people. It was a, a, a local person, not an international celebrity. But I thought, man, this is, this is an issue more of character. It doesn't matter what your church structure or size is if there isn't Christlikeness and humility and integrity. And the leadership, there's no structure that will mitigate well against that kind of a meltdown, as tragic as it is. Yep. Uh, just to bring up another unpopular subject, I'm really here in a pleasant mood. Maybe this is the tooth I was telling you about. I don't know. I just had a, I spent three and a half hours this morning at a dentist. I broke open my tooth after church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And $2,000 and three and a half hours later, I now have a new tooth. And so maybe that's why I'm just coming at you with all the negativity. <laughs> I, no, I, I'm really, I'm really genuinely love the church. and love the church in America.
0: You, I promise. You did say in the book at one point that you, uh, you tend to be melancholy. And yeah. I really appreciate you living into your book, and I appreciate you really representing that melancholy state today. Um, so so far, we've decided that you don't like the enneagram, you hate big churches, and um, what, what uh, else? You want to say Max Lucato is a mean person? Like just say that, and you basically
1: don't ruin don't ruin Max for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything bad about him.
0: Don't
1: ruin him. He's uh, like sometimes... Sometimes people will bring like some word of gossip about somebody that's God's used in my life. Like, just I just don't want to hear. No, I just no. don't want to hear. Don't don't ruin this person for me. I'm no. so blessed. I know. I,
0: I I I've got a buddy from Hillsong, and he was saying something, and I said uh, uh, something about uh, Taya, the the uh, the woman who sings Oceans, um, and I was like. I can hear a lot of bad things about a lot of people, but I can't hear anything bad about her. I need her to still be who I think she is just for my own soul. So I don't care if, if she is Michael Vicking, killing a bunch of dogs. Don't tell me. I, I, I can't, I can't process that. Okay. Um, I, can't, no. but,
1: I promise I'm, I'm honestly not like a cynical person, or at least I'm one in recovery.
0: Okay. What do you think about puppies? <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to help is, you out. Like a is softball. Is this a
1: passive aggressive
0: no. question about Aunt Downs? Or
1: <laughs> is this because uh, she just got a puppy? Or is this like puppies in general? I
0: was trying what? to just give you a softball like where you could win the crowd back. Like, I like puppies, I like uh-oh, ice cream. Uh-oh. Um, I,
1: I like, we actually have a puppy right now. Like, she's a year old now, but we, we bought mm-hmm. a puppy um, against my will, actually. Oh, no, uh, so, no you didn't I, need to I, say I, that. I don't like oh, so You just asked that question. <laughs> I don't like dogs. Oh. But you know what? <laughs> I am learning to love one in particular on behalf of my 10-year-old son.
0: <laughs> uh okay well thanks for listening uh we're gonna go ice cream to- <laughs> like go with something else like i don't know i like ice cream i like jesus <laughs> i was gonna say netflix but i've read your book and you have a lot of yeah. things about netflix which are not positive so yeah, um yeah, that's true. let's talk about dallas willard everyone likes dallas okay willard.
1: yes yes
0: and uh dare i say the john the baptist to the dallas willard known as john ortberg because he is the yeah. messenger of Dallas yes. Willard. we I had oh, thanks, one of the first times I ever did an in-person podcast. Coincidentally enough, we were just talking about this off mic, uh, Pepperdine University. He was at Pepperdine. And so we uh, did an interview actually at Pepperdine's Beach House with John Orberg. And he wrote a book about uh, Dallas Willard, which yeah, I know you know that. What is the name of the most recent one?
1: Soul Soulkeeping maybe would be yes. his most like you know. This is what I learned from Willard, but he has others that have been deeply shaped by Willard's thoughts.
0: Yeah, and so he, that one was on, and uh, the line which is actually the title of your book, uh, the ruthless elimination of hurry. Am I getting this correct? Yeah. The world would not have that line if Ortberg didn't transmit what Willard had told him in a private conversation. Is that right? Exactly. Willard
1: never wrote that line down, to my knowledge, in a book or article or anything. That's from a phone call between Willard and John Orper.
0: And so, your story you have this church that uh, has put in a great deal of stress and probably excitement and ego trip yep. and great deal of probably fruitful ministry, all that mixed yep. together, good, all bad, that Mixed all, bad, Yeah. Yes. And you have this season where you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out. And. Somehow you and Orberg had already been friends, or you developed a friendship around that time?
1: Yeah, he's been kind enough to, uh, I would not call him a mentor. He's been kind enough to have lunch with me on a couple times a year basis.
0: So y- you've uh, been in contact with him, and he connects you to some of the stuff from Dallas Willard. And yeah. there is this conversion that happens in your life.
1: I, I had already fallen in love with Willard's writings, and had, and Willard's writings had already begun to really reshape the way, or at least give me a paradigm for what it means to follow or apprentice under Jesus. Um, but. I still I I was at this. I mean, I, I guess some of the backstory is one way to tell the story would be like, you know, quintessential millennial angst over the mega church. That's really a second, third, fourth tier down, and that's a separate conversation, and I, I feel less and less angst over that in all honesty. I think the bigger question for me was something about the way that I was following Jesus and doing life in a church was not leading me to greater and greater levels of love and Mm -hmm. Christ-likeness. In fact, I felt just stuck. I felt like, you know, through my kind of high school, college years, I grew up in the church, my father was a pastor, I've been following Jesus as long as I can remember. I felt like I was on this upwards, not the right word, but this forward trajectory toward Christ-likeness, or whatever you want to call it, just maturity. You become more like Jesus, you know, year over year. And then, I don't know, about mid-20s, a year or two into the church plant, I just felt like I hit this plateau, and I was just, the second that my discipleship to Jesus began to touch on, talk about Enneagram, like the deeply ingrained habits of, if you prefer that word sin, in my mind, and my body, in my genetic code, through my family of origin and my culture, like the second we got to that personality level stuff, is literally in my neurobiology. It's like the formula that I kind of grew up with, which I'm all for, it's still in my rule of life, but I've kind of come to church read the Bible and do some intercessory prayer in the morning and tithe or whatever that, which I think is all good stuff. I still practice all of that, but that was just no longer leading me. I was just banging my head against this wall year over year. I was not more loving and joyful and peaceful in the way of Jesus. I was actually more stressed out and irritable and on edge and angry. And, you know, and I thought, okay, something, something is, you know, Willard had that line, which is actually a line from the business community your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. Mm-hmm. So if the results that you are getting are, you know, I'm stressed out all the time, I feel chronic exhaustion, I feel angry at the world all the time, then something about the system that is your life, your morning routine, where your feed is, the relationships you're in or not in, how you do church life, discipleship, prayer, all of that, body health, something about that system is likely actually designed to give you this byproduct of emotional unhealth and spiritual sense of distance from God or whatever your thing is, mm-hmm. you know? So I think for me, there's this big, like, kind of, it's, it's a tragically common trope for a pastor, at least one my generation, but this big wake-up moment of, oh, wow, I, like, I see the future me 20 years from now, and I, it's not a person I'm excited to become.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get back to the, uh, the system thing in a second. But yeah. you said it, a standard trope of, uh, like, you get this far, you get to this certain place, and especially like the, I'm don't know, i not saying this is the trope you're describing, but what I would say I've seen a lot, and it's even my own story, is early 30s, you've been a pastor for a, a decade or so, and you've gotten to do a handful of things that maybe your, your aspirations or your goals, you get there and you go, oh, okay, something's not working, my faith isn't working, my picture of church isn't working, my, my way of life isn't working, this story happens over and over again. Why do you think it, and you can describe the the trope that you're, you're thinking of. Why do you think that happens so much at that stage of life with so many of us in the similar calling?
1: You know, that's a great question. I'm I'm sure. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. You know, I think it's complex. It's based on personality and your story and all of that. But I think as a, from 30,000 feet, you know, I think what I was experiencing in the mega church kind of Amer- the way that American metrics of success had maybe, you know, mutated some of the vision of church, I think that is true pretty much across the board, whether you're a dentist <laughs> mm-hmm. or a pastor or a full-time parent or a student or an artist or whatever. I think, you know, um, to borrow some like union language of the first half and second half of life and middle life crisis— our culture is very much, I think Western culture in general and American culture in particular is very much a first half of life culture. Mm -hmm. It's, my therapist calls it the gospel of upward mobility. You know what I mean? It's just like, and often this just totally creeps into the church even, and we don't mean it to, but it's a sense of like, oh, the best is yet to come. And it's like, next year is going to be better than this year and better and better. It's a sense that each year I'm just going to get better and life's going to get better and better and better and better. And again, not all of that is bad. And you know, But there's this sense where all of a sudden life no longer does that. Mm -hmm. And you reach a certain age where all of a sudden like you begin to face the weight of disappointment. And life is rich and good. And there are some things about my life I just wake up in the morning and pinch myself with gratitude that I'm alive. And there are other areas where I just thought, man, this sucks. This is really hard. And I just don't think our culture hands us a vision of what it looks like to finish the first half of life well. Deal, deal with the disappointment of all that your life isn't, and then move into the slow growth toward a whole new metric system, you know, what David Brooks calls the second mountain, if yep. you've read that book. Just a whole new yeah. value system, metrics for success, becoming the village elder kind of thing over 30 years. Um, You know, and I just don't, I don't think enough of us have a vision for that. You know, when I was starting out in church planning, I don't think I really saw beyond like, I want our church to be thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I want to be like an Orthodox Ra or whatever the thing was, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I just don't think I really saw beyond that. And then you get there and you're like, Oh wow, this is not remotely what I thought it would be. And my soul has yet to come to ground, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the lack of like rights Richard Rohr talks about how uh, in Japanese culture, I think it was after World War II, they had a right where soldiers would return from the war and they would say, thank you, what you've done has served our, y- your community and your country and your family well, but we need you now as no longer a soldier, but, but something more than a soldier. And like, this is over, yeah. we need something new. Uh, we, we don't have that. And uh, yep. I, I know you're uh, a Rollheiser fan, Ronald Rollheiser, friend of the show. Yes, um, massive fan. I, I feel like he's got, instead of like the, the two halves of life, which Roar jumps on Jung's stuff, but Rollheiser, yep. I think, has, has three, three. three phases. Yep, and I, absolutely. And I wonder if there's something maybe with longer lives or something that uh, is more fitting because it seems like there's the early stage that gets you to 30 and then from 30 yep. to 60 and then from 60 to, uh, to the end or yep. r- whatever, but... And, and
1: his are, right, Kirby, uh, if I'm wrong, getting your life together, giving your life away, yes. and then giving death away. I think that's the third. Oof. I think those are the three. I know, I know it's giving your life away and giving your death away. I think it's getting your life together. I that think it's stage right. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, 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 I think it dovetails really well with the Jungian roar first half, second half thing. He just kind of has a, a third piece out there. Yeah. And he's, he hasn't written that book yet. So it's just like a really cool sounding, ambiguous chapter at this point. I'm dying for him to write it. No, I'm yeah. not planning on dying anytime soon.
0: Yeah, no, no. Uh, let's let let's hope not. Um, but roll out, yeah, yeah. Uh, brilliant stuff. Now, um, okay. I want to go back to systems, and then we're going to get to business. Uh, I, I hate that I'm scheduling this conversation so much, but no, you're saying no, stuff no. that I, I want. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. the The system that you're in is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. So something like that. That's the yep. the idiom. Yep. That's business world, but that also yep. Willard use a lot. I think it's a truism. Yeah, it's a truism. How do I analyze the system that I've created that's creating the results? So for example, if, if my system is I am chronically behind, I'm not getting something done, um, that's the result I'm getting. How do I process what my system is that's creating that result?
1: Yeah, I mean I mean, gosh, it's not it's not rocket science. We're about to teach this fall at our church on developing a rule of life, you know, which again is incredibly like central to the Christian tradition over the years. And it's basically a non-existent idea in most Mm -hmm. of Protestantism, you know? So can't wait for that. And I think we're going to just start by having people do two very, very simple things. Like one is just get out a blank calendar that we'll print out for them and write in what your regular schedule is. You know what I mean? As you perceive it, like what's your, and put in everything, not just like your spiritual stuff, put in Netflix, put in grocery shopping, put in dog park, put in whatever's there. Mm -hmm and and then do a second one where you actually do a time audit you know what i mean and and make sure that you include digital stuff as a part of. It. like we do that with our church every year we have them you know it's pretty easy if you have an iphone but just go through and count up how many hours you spend on everything and it's like seriously i do it with my community every year and it is like beyond embarrassing i don't even have words like we just go around the circle and say i spent x minutes on instagram x minutes on netflix x minutes you know Texting my wife, oh my gosh, it turns out my wife texts like for a part time job, basically. <laughs> and, um, but it's so good because most of us have no idea. I mean, that's, are you talking about Tristan Harris? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, his work, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Product philosophy, blah, 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 arguing for a Hippocratic Oath for software designers. And his whole thing is that, you know, the, the slot machine business makes more than like professional sports combined. And it's just these tiny little increments, like a buck here, a quarter there, 50 cents there. And so you don't think it adds up, but actually they make billions of dollars off of you that way. And I think some of the time stuff works the same. It's like, just a quick text message, a quick glance on Instagram. While I'm at the stoplight. Right. I didn't say that, um, but you know, whatever. It just adds up. So I don't know. I feel like that's maybe the starting place for just a little honest self evaluation. Is like, What's my what is my rule of life? Everybody has one whether it's conscious or unconscious. Yep. And how do I actually spend my time versus how I want to spend my time or think I spend my time or claim I spend my time?
0: Yeah, I, I think if we had accountability groups that uh, said, hey, this is how many minutes I spent on Instagram this day or this is how many hours I spent on Facebook, yeah. I think you would have the like – The world would be a much better place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the, so rule of life. Now,
1: what, what that doesn't get though to is the deeper – we can talk about rule of life, but that doesn't get to the deeper internal stuff. That isn't schedule-based or phone-based that does weight adage to our soul, Mm -hmm. such as the need for control or perfectionism or, you know, lingering bitterness or anger over a family of origin wound or whatever. There's other deeper stuff, too. Um, But I think the easiest place to start is with the external stuff. Like, what do I do with my body during the day? What's my relationship to my phone how much time am I wasting on social media or Netflix or whatever? Mm-hmm. That's the first place to begin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh rule of life that comes. Is it Ignatius? Wait, what is rule of life? Who, who introduced the concept? You know,
1: I don't know who introduced it. My understanding is it's, you know, it's way before Ignatius. I mean, I think we're talking second century, third century, really? the latest. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you got Benedict, Benedict has the first robust rule of life, and that's 4th century, I believe. But, you know, and and then Augustine has one, St. Patrick has one in 4th century as well, but I I think it's before that, you know. Mm -hmm. My, like, really probably biased reading of church history is that basically for the first three centuries, the church was trying to figure out what the heck just happened with Trinitarian love through Jesus' death, Mm -hmm. burial, and resurrection. And so they're trying to figure out how is God one god and what just happened with jesus of nazareth and they're working out you know what we now would call a theology of trinity which is really understanding how god is love and it's beautiful and then from there i mean until the reformation i think so many of the conversations were actually conversations less about theology more about rule of life Mm -hmm. they were patrick saying this is how we live benedict as the roman empire then is in decline culture is you know like not that crazy far off from where we're at now but the barbarians come in there's chaos there's anarchy people don't know what's up the old power structures are shifting people are looking for some kind of a calm center amid the chaos of life then the conversation begins to become how then do we live how do we live in such a way that abide in the vine john 15 is not just a sentimental idea it is a metaphorical description of what's actually happening in our life with
0: jesus yeah yeah that's good so so Early on, early Christians trying to figure out the Trinity. Which, much yeah. thanks, we appreciate that very. And
1: if you're a church historian, and I just totally butchered the whole thing with that gross oversimplification. Email Luke. I think I think
0: <laughs> it's still going to pale in comparison to the anger you've created for dog lovers and enneagram lovers. So so far, dog lovers, enneagram lovers, uh, and church historians against you. But people who are aware of the importance of getting a rule of life, I think they're going to be for you. Because one of the things that's very true about our world is that just as you describe your experience of just so much, of being so busy, I think that's the common experience of the American life. I was preaching, I'm preaching through the fruit of the Spirit and using um, Philip Kennison's book, uh, Life in the Vine. It's been a great, great resource. And I'm preaching about patience a couple weeks ago. And uh, uh, in between services, I'm uh, in the foyer, and I'm talking to a friend of mine who's been in the States a couple years from the Congo. And he's been a part of our church for, for, uh, I think, since he got to the States. And so he's part of this delegation of uh, people from uh, Rwanda, the Congo, uh, who have been migrated over to the United States, refugees, and who have become a part of our church. And so it's a great, uh, it's a great contribution to our church because they have a prophetic witness against some of the uh, sins of our world that are not part of yeah. their world. Um, yeah. And I'm talking that Sunday about patience, and I'm saying that we need to be more, uh, we're so, so committed to productivity that we are not patient for other people, so we're so busy, we're more important, we care more about being productive than being present to people. That's the sermon. In between service, I go, "Hey, what's going on? How you you doing, Kashindi?" Hey, yeah. yeah. Uh, How are you, Luke? And I go, "Huh. Things are good. Just busy." And he goes, "Busy. You, you Americans are always busy." And I was like, "I'm literally preaching on this right now." And I just, I see what I'm saying. Like, I see what I'm doing. Like, that is the pace that we're all addicted to. Why do you think it is that busy is the answer that we're all given when asked the question, "How you doing?"
1: Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's given because it's true. I think it's because the vast majority of people are way too busy and too busy for love. And I think that connection you just made to relationship is the key connection and why it matters so much as follows of Jesus. But yeah, again, I don't think there's one answer to that. I think the phone is a massive part of it. You know, I think that what the phone has done to speed up our life is astronomical wealth is part of it. Um Again, I think of myself as like a middle-class person, but we forget that we live in this, you know, if you're middle-class American, you're in less than like, what, one or two percent of the global population wealth-wise. And with wealth comes options. You know, you have, even if you don't have a lot of wealth, even if you just have 50 bucks, you know, left over at the end of the week or whatever, well, that's, what am I going to do? Should I go out to eat? Should I run a movie? Should I go see a thing? Should I run a bike? You know, whatever. There's all these options that wealth creates that then generate and things, like for everything you own. Time goes into that for maintenance, for repair, for playing with it, for doing it, for getting a new one, for, you know, maintain whatever the thing is. So I think the digital thing is massive. I, I don't think we can say enough about 2007 and the introduction of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Two, I think wealth, what that's done. Three, urbanization. Like, we're just not farmers who live out on the land. We're, you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're in a city, and cities are basically… Urban playgrounds. You know what I mean? There's so much to see and do and busyness and noise. And then, of course, I personally think that secularism has something to do with it because, you know, I think Orberg has this great line, you know, busyness isn't just a sign of a disordered schedule. It's a sign of a disordered heart. And I think for a lot of different people, busyness is a coping mechanism for a secular reality. It could be that, one, they're just using busyness, even if they're not secular people, to outrun some kind of pain. You know what I mean? And so whether that busyness comes in the form of you know, a type A kind of – we often think of the busy people as the work people. They're the lawyer that works 90 hours a week. But some people are incredibly busy, and they work part-time and just watch Netflix and play video games all the time. Mm-hmm. Like You can still be busy, whatever your personality, however career-based you are or not. So, I think there's a, chan- a way people use it to run from fa- pain. I think in a secular world, I don't mean this to take cheap shots to my secular friends at all, but I think there is a fear of actually asking the really big questions of human existence and meaning and purpose mm-hmm. and morality because, like, the answers you get are incredibly nihilistic. And, like, if you actually follow secularism down its logic of thought, yeah. you end up at a, a really bleak spot of your view of the universe and so I think that there's a vested interest in not going <laughs> to things like Sun and And again, I'm not like trying to criticize all secular people. Are like re- not remotely. There are many secular people that go to those places and beautifully with maturity. But I do think there's something there yep. where like now we just can't we can't go deep. So let's just be in the city and make money and watch Netflix and do our stuff and go.
0: That makes sense. You know,
1: and and maybe we'll like earn an identity through our accomplishment or busyness or you know sport or whatever. Yeah.
0: Have you heard of uh, Ernst Becker's work? you probably heard the name Ernst Becker. He talks about uh, in the age in which uh, the divine no longer exists or God no longer exists, we have to find substitutes for it. And one of the substitutes he talks about yes. is uh, apocalyptic love, which at first sounds like a, like a really cool movie. But um, upon further review, it's the idea that you have to replace God with the lover and so you put all these unrealistic expectations on something that's, yes. that a relationship cannot sustain that. And the same thing can be true with, with work or um, social interaction or whatever, is that it, if you don't have the place for the divine in the center, everything else has to become divine in itself. And yes, that 100%. That doesn't work out. And, so, and that's
1: where, you know, Rollheiser and Willer were both so helpful. Rollheiser talks about like the spirit of restlessness. And Christian philosophy of, you know, desire and how desire is infinite and it was made for God. And once you take that desire off of God, whatever you put it on, even if it's church or ministry or work or sex or romance, you live this chronic restlessness, disappointment, anxiety, angst, busyness, because nothing can live up to that ache. So, then you just speed up to this insane pace, yep. you know?
0: Yep, yep and I like how you said it can be church because especially for people like you and me, who it is our profession, uh, it can seem like we're not working and we're doing God's work, but there is a sense in which it's still our job. It's still church. And yeah,
1: uh, ego can get into it. Ambition can get into it. Insecurity can get into it. Yep. All of that stuff's there. It's almost easier for us to mask because we can just say,
0: I'm serving God, you know,
1: when we might actually be running from a difficult marriage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, I'm not going to give an example of that if someone just came to my mind. Yeah, because that would probably be a pretty Again, terrible I, thing to I, say. I don't mean
1: that. I don't mean that in a cynical way at all. I mean like it's just a, it's a sober warning for me on a regular basis. I we have one of the easiest jobs in the world to do the right thing for the wrong reason.
0: Yes, and
1: um, so I think there's a, it's a healthy, sober kind of self awareness. Like, okay, am I? Am I? What am I doing with this? Am I doing this as an act of love, or am I running from something?
0: Yeah. So if we realize that the rule of life that we have adopted, even if we haven't explicitly written it down, but if you do the work and say, hey, let me write actually down what I'm doing with my schedule, my time, and my money, uh, you, sh- yep. you see this way of life, this rule of life that you've developed that is full of busyness and you realize that it is not creating the results that you want for who you are and who God wants you to be. You decide, I'm, I'm going to step away from that. W- one of the first things I feel like you have to do is become okay with limitations. And yes. in the book, you have a quote from uh, Pete Scazzaro and yeah. he says that, um, something about, uh, we
1: find God's will for our life and our limitations. That's, Oh, I love that. Sorry. I had to, I had to say, say it, it again. I make say sure again. It Cause I was going get... find God's will for our life and our limitations. That's Pete's line, not mine.
0: Yeah. Okay. So when Pete says that, that might be confusing to some, why don't you, uh, do a little on that and explain it to us. Yeah.
1: And, and, and that could be really, you know, especially coming from a kind of upwardly mobile white dude, that could be really misinterpreted. What he means by that, you know, this is, again, this is my language, not his. But when I read Genesis and I see this beautiful tension between when human beings are imago Dei, they're like in the image of God, and they're also made from the dust. And so my reading of that is like we as human beings, we have both potential like literally to be like God and to rule over the world on his behalf. But we also have limitations. Like at the end of the day, we're made from dust. You know, however you interpret that, literal or metaphoric, the point is the same. Like we're, we're made from dust. And so in the Genesis story, I mean, w- one way of reading the serpent's temptation to Eve and to Adam is a temptation to transgress their limitations, And to step outside of their place in God's ordered and beautiful world. Mm -hmm. And I think at some level, that's the primal human temptation, you know, or one way of Mm -hmm. reading it. Is that there's this, we have this place in God's world. Under the creator, over the creation, we're image of God, but we're dust. We're spiritual or immaterial, but we're also material. We have eternity in our hearts, but we're mortal, right? And so, it's about living gratefully and humbly in our place in God's world. And so, you know, a a lot is said inside the church and the self-help community and Western culture hall about like reaching your full potential. And I'm 110% for that. In particular, people that don't come from a level of privilege due to their family of origin or their ethnic background or the neighborhood they grew up in, they need to hear that message like loud and clear. Like you are made in the image of God. You have ripe potential. God is for you. Best is yet to come. Go for it. Mm. The thing is, when that gets translated to an upwardly mobile, you know, white guy in a coastal city like me... It's just one half of a very important two-sided thing. Like, it's just as theologically true that I'm made from the dust and I need to accept my limitations, Mm -hmm. but almost nothing is said about that. Like, there's not best-selling books that are like, accept your cosmic insignificance. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, limitations are a gift from God. But when we go over our limitations, the first place we feel it is in our emotions The first place it wreaks havoc and does damage is in our close relationships where it sabotages love. And these emotions and relational failures, or whatever you want to call them, um, inhibitions and inabilities to love, should be the first things that, like, graciously are God's messengers to us. Like, you've gone over your limitations. You've gone past your place. Mm -hmm. You've you've stepped out of Eden. You're not living in… To your place in God's ordered world. Yeah. That's, I guess, my, my read on it. No, no, no. That's my interpretation of Pete's one line. <laughs> you find God's will for your life and your limitations.
0: Yeah. And we, it, it would kind of make more sense just to ask Pete to explain what that was. But I like us talking about Pete and what he had to say uh, more. That's, just lit. That was ridiculous. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, Thank you. The, the, okay. So I, I like the way that you were quick to say that the way that you talk about limitations is going to be heavily contoured by your setting, and as someone who is uh, upperly mobile middle class uh, in a place of privilege in the general sense of the word it 's different and l- let me say this as someone who just received the criticism uh, two months ago about my next book from an editor that the book sounds like someone who was written uh, written by a white male from privilege and i 'm like, well, uh, I kind of am a white male from privilege that's the i mean in a general sense the word privilege but the idea of talking about limitations and saying, hey we need to, to slow down and not be so hurried and say no to things for some people i know that that is a a privilege that they don't they haven't been afforded the opportunity to take the the hurry and the busy that they have seems to be something that is the only way uh that they can survive how do you think limitations can be put in place for someone who feels like i, I don't have the ability to to, to take a step down in work i don't have the ability to to do less in my office. This is the only way I can pay the bills
1: yeah i man i don't know how to graciously say i'm just always a little skeptical of that line of thought. I know there is uh you know the hypothetical person out there that is working three part-time jobs to, as a single parent, provide for three kids, right? But most of the the people I know that are dealing with poverty, their problem is actually that they can't get enough work, you know, not that they have too much of it. And again, these are gross oversimplifications that are not helpful. But I just find that so many people talk about that, but then when you actually get into the nitty gritty of life, it's, well, I can't do this and keep this really nice house. Or I can't do this and be in the career I want to be in. Or I can't do this and be on Netflix. I mean, if you just look at the bare stats, I mean, the average person is on, you know, Instagram, two hours a day, the average American is watching five and a half hours of TV a day. So and this is like a cross, I mean, this is like, those are like some gigantic portions of time. So I think Hold on, that the math I says just,
0: seven hours of TV and Instagram for the average person.
1: Yeah, I mean it's hard to measure and it's different for millennials and Gen Z and everything's confusing now because of devices. But yeah, I mean Facebook products as a whole, it's over two hours a day on average for most Americans. And I think the TV, you read different stats, but it's always like four and a half to five and a half hours. And then for millennials, it's lower, but then their digital usage is way higher. So mm-hmm. like five and a half hours a day, you know, but then It's confusing to measure because it's text messaging for work. But
0: but the point you're saying is that there is a lot of time that's allocated for this sort of frivolous stuff.
1: I guess what I'm saying is 90% of the people that tell me I'm too busy to slow down or Sabbath or whatever, when I actually ask some very kind, gracious, but direct questions, they're not too busy. They've just chosen a lifestyle that is way over the limitations. There is a 10% of people, or what, and that's a totally arbitrary number. There is a percentage of people they literally can't pay the bills, provide for their family. They're under suffering. You know what I mean? They have a low income job and their spouse is chronically ill and they have three kids. And like, there's just no possible way for them. And for those people, I have a massive amount of empathy. But the reality is, they're probably not listening to this podcast right now. The average I mean, seriously, I read the other day the average podcast listener makes $75,000 a year and has a bachelor's degree. So, you know what I mean? Like, that's just that's just statistical fact. Mm-hmm. So, I think um, – I, I just think sometimes we let the hypothetical scenario of these very important people that we need to stand with and come together around as a community justify <laughs> hours a day on Netflix or yep. hobbies that we don't need or a standard of living that's unrealistic for us at this season, you know? Yep. So, again, I I could probably just make people mad saying that kind of stuff. I just – I think that when you, when you bring up the idea that people might be too busy, um, it touches on lots of deep emotional things. Yep. Insecurity. You know, my buddy, AJ Swoboda, I don't know if you've had him oh, on the yeah. podcast. Oh, AJ. So,
0: it,
1: it's wonderful. And his, in his book on Sabbath, which is beautiful, he has this great line, and we had him come teach, you know, and I think he said it in his t- teaching too, he said, Sabbath steps on every idol that Americans have. Yep. And materialism, shopping, insecurity, busyness, digital distraction, like, you know, identity based on accomplishment. It touches all of that if you take a day off. Not just a day off, but a day away. So I think busy, I think the same could be said for like the message of Unhurry as a whole. It's beautiful and some of us find it so compelling, but it also like touches on the deep idols of American culture. Yep.
0: Okay, in honor of AJ, who uh, says, he says terrible things about me. He says that I bring sarcasm out of him. I would like to think that <laughs> you as a good friend would say, I'm feeling the same thing, man. I've been more cynical. And no, the last no, that's,
1: I'm just going to oh, let no. me blame it on you no. and not first. I blame it on the dentist. Now I'm blaming it on you. I'm just not taking any responsibility okay. for it.
0: Well, I think what we're dealing with is the demonic stronghold of, uh, um. of the Pacific Northwest. That's what we're going to say. Um,
1: when I was, That's true. There is, there is a demonic stronghold of cynicism over the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Probably in all likelihood there actually is.
0: Yeah, and so I'm going to blame it on that. Um, yeah. The, but it, one of the things that was very life-giving about him, not the, the attack of my character, but the statement that there is no perfect Sabbath. He talked about, yes. and I, I, that was very freeing to me. Uh, Sabbath is one of the, the four S's. I guess there's five S's, but you cut them as four chapters because you mix silence and solitude together. Um, yeah. I like the alliteration. First of all, I really appreciate that. Silent, solitude, Sabbath, slowing down, and simplicity. I think I got them out of order. Yeah. But you have these yeah. four practices. You suggest these are what help you get to where you are. The book ends with you saying this has been a five-year experiment. Or not experiment. It's been a five-year journey. Yeah. Journey? Yeah, sure. Whatever you want to call it. And, yeah, experiments grow. And you're writing from the other side of, this has actually been something that, that changed my life.
1: Yeah. And that the, and not saying I have it down, and I'm very much in progress, and there is no perfect practice. That's not the point. But here are some practices that are massively helping me in my um, commitment to ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of my life.
0: Okay, I hate to say this, but I've got to hurry to go visit someone in the hospital. So if you have yeah, one practice that someone says, I, I want to start somewhere what is the first prescription you're going to give to the average person who says, okay, I'm too busy. I understand my life and my pace is, is off. I don't like the results of this. Give me something for right now that I can start with.
1: Honestly, this is going to sound so like one-on-one. But especially working millennials in the city, I think it needs to be said a lot more. I would just say parent your phone and start your day with a quiet time. Parent your phone, meaning like your phone should go to bed before you go to bed Mm -hmm and wake up after you wake up, yep. right? So, like, I don't sleep with my phone. 93% of Americans have their phone next to them, and 76% of them check it first thing upon waking. waking. So, I, like, my wife and I went out and bought old-school analog alarm clocks, and we put our phones in a closet in another room at 830 every night, and they're not allowed on. I mean, it's, it's all flexible if you have, like, an early morning yeah. flight. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. yeah, they just don't come on until after we've spent time in the quiet before Jesus. You know, and there's tons of flexibility in getting kids off to school and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, like it's so old school, but just a morning quiet time with no phone where you just sit before God and center yourself before your day. Like we, there's a, there's a two hour version of that. There's a 10 minute version of that. That's really So start wherever you're at. And the beauty is you don't, you don't have to start with the two hour version. Start with the the 10 minute. I think you can get closer to an hour. Wonderful. Some of you are like, I have three kids. There's no way I'm a lawyer. I work in whatever. Okay. Great. Get 10 or 15 minutes, but just a moment. to center your mind and your body in God and to unhurry and so on, and even get a sense of direction and clarity for the day before you step into the insanity. Man, I, that's like it's so doable. Anybody can do that pretty much. That's good.
0: that's good. Well, I feel like you want people back over. I think you started slow. I think the dog thing was probably the so,
1: the puppies and Enneagram and churches and yeah. and I actually hate any of that i'm really actually quite joyful right now happy to be yeah
0: and you said nothing mean about max lucado so i think i think you're onto something uh the book is the ruthless elimination of hurry so people go hurry out to your stores and and buy it no just slowly get it whenever i would say the release date is the end of the month but um it doesn't matter just on your own time on your own pace uh acquire the book whenever you want is that the right way to pitch a book about not hurrying? because i would say hurry up and go Uh, get it but i I don't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Dude, no (laughs) comment at all. Be fully present to your Amazon account as you order this (laughs) video. I'm just, just
0: happy to be here, man. Awesome. Great work, man. Good meeting you.
1: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.